0: be 11 days. Honestly, what are we doing here? I told myself the same thing. Rehab doesn't work, but- Excuse me, Darby, phone for you. My mom is in the hospital, I have to leave. Darby, you know the rules. You leave and you're back in jail. Boats closed. I have to get to Salt Lake City. No one's getting through until the storm passes. I opened up the visitor center for some folks and waited out there. So what's your name? Darby. Sandy. It, I'm Ash. Bars? Do you have the Wi-Fi? <sighs> no, there's no Wi-Fi. I got one bar by the tree for about 10 seconds. Hey, are you okay? Make yourself comfortable. What? What? We are here till the storm clears. I'm getting you out of here as soon as I can. The trick is, play the man, not the hand. Everybody's got to tell, huh? What's yours? You're gonna have to figure that one out for yourself. Go. Up and down! Three! I don't want to die here. Two! We have to go now. Oh, it's going to be a long night. Oh, Hello, and welcome to Max and Jason Movie. I'm Max, and it's just me in Lord Movie Studios this week. There are reasons, audience. Uh, My co-host and I have been traveling a lot this summer, or otherwise, attending to end of summer, or is it early fall activities. It's hard for me to edit on the road. I haven't quite mastered editing on my laptop. I will try, audience, to master laptop editing in the future, and laptop recording. That just hasn't been very easy to do. Uh, The rest of October should be pretty smooth sailing, though. But before we get on to the show... Let me do a little bit of house creeping. Our last two Dirty Harry episodes, Sudden Impact and The Deadpool, are recorded. (laughs) Huzzah! 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 (sighs) Yes! Huzzah! huzzah! <laughs> and let me add my own very hearty huzzah to that compilation of huzzahs. The last two films just require a bit of editing. There is a catch, though, constant listener. The Harry Callahan saga won't be completed until November for you listeners. It will probably be done before then. But Jason and I and our guest host, Anya, really want to do the spooky season right, so the rest of the month of October will just be spooky season films, starting with this episode right now. And that episode is going to cover Hulu's fairly recent No Exit. Now, is this film an according to Hoyle spooky season film? I think so, but thrillers obviously always walk the line in that regard, don't they? IMDb gives No Exit a triple genre entry of drama, mystery, and thriller. So I think that allows me to consider it a reasonable Halloween entry. Has anyone said a typical Halloween film must be supernatural or supernatural adjacent? I don't think so. No Exit was directed by Damien Power. I think that name sounds a bit like a superhero name or maybe a supervillain. The film is based on a novel by Taylor Adams, which I read prior to this recording and I'll talk about that later. Screenplay adapted by Andrew Bearer and Gabriel Ferrari. Bearer, I'm sorry, Bearer and Ferrari have, I think, really pushed the limits of adaptation in their script treatment, but I think remained overall quite true to every major beat and emotional resonance of the novel. But, as I said, I'll talk about that more later. The film stars Havana Rose Liu as Darby, Danny Ramirez as Ash, Ashley as well, is the full name in the novel. David Reisdahl as Lars and Myla Harris as Jay Dennis H- Haysbert as Ed the voice of, I think, Prudential Insurance? I could be wrong about that but a great narrator and a great actor Dale Dickey, this name sounds a little bit more like a porn actor or actress to me, I mean, I think I've never, of course, watched any such film. She stars as Sandy. Benedict Wall as Corporal Ron Hill, a state trooper in the state of California, I think. James Galen as Dr. Bill. Lisa Zhang as Devon, And Huaylin Au as Darby's mother. And that probs, as the kids say, is as deep as we need to dive into the cast. Out of the gate, let me just say that I think Havana Rose Liu is a talent to watch. Her IMDb page suggests she began her entertainment career as a model, but it sounds like she's one of those uh, showbiz kids who can do, she's like a talent polymath. She sings, she dances, she acts and models. And I suspect Lou is an actress who is going places. I hope I'm right about this. Lou has only seven credits to her name. Two of those are short films and, and she has a couple of episodes of The Chair. Uh, which is, I think, a Netflix drama starring Sandra Oh, who is also a gem. Uh, That said, the work seems quirky and interesting. I think Lou has a good eye, and she's a great actress. And like I said, I I really think the kids go in places. No Exit is a special kind of small space, small cast, almost claustrophobic thriller. There are, in my opinion, I'm sorry, these are, in my opinion, some of the best and probably the hardest kinds of thrillers to make. In addition to the film's general thriller aspects, No Exit also incorporates elements of noir film traditions and elements. If the film isn't firmly in the noir category, it is definitely noir-adjacent. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, which is a strange place to find this, I think, but it's what popped up first in my searching, a film noir is a style of filmmaking characterized by such elements as cynical heroes, stark lighting effects, frequent use of flashbacks, intricate plots, and an underlying exist- existential angst. I think all these elements are present in No Exit. It is dark, it is brooding, its lighting is dark, and its palette is really muted. There are no angels in this film. Every, all, each character is sometimes criminally, even psychopathically flawed. And it is undeniable that Darby suffers from a very clear existential angst. Audience, let me pause to take a drink of my Nika Coffee Grain Whiskey. (sighs) That hit the spot. Uh, Let me circle back to the unexpected claustrophobia claustrophobia of the film. No no Exit's thrilling mystery may take place on a mountain, but most of the human drama of the film takes place in and around a rest stop isolated by a blizzard. There is one foot chase away from the rest area, but the grandness that we might have seen in a different film is obscured by dark, cloudy night. And, and, and the snow is blowing so fast and furious that none of the people involved can see well past the range of an outstretched arm. And that includes the viewer, by the way. We don't see any more, really, than our heroes and our villains in this film. Anyone who's ever been in such adverse conditions will appreciate how the director and the FX team captured the feel and sound of, of this storm and the way it affects what is perceived. We, the viewers, often cannot see any more than the heroes and the villains of the film, which I think I already said, but I'm reading from a script and that's a little... I fucked it up. Anyway, this is quite a feat, I think, as the entire chilling landscape was created on a soundstage in, of all places, New Zealand. No Exit is, and I just learned this term as I was writing this episode, a bottle film or a bottle thriller. A bottle film or bottle thriller is a film that takes place more or less in a single small location. Sometimes this is just a single room. Sometimes, as with No Exit, a room in a truncated area, uh, of the surroundings, the area of the entire the, uh, sorry the area in which the entire life and death struggles of No Exit take place is probably no bigger than a moderately sized country home and yard. So I would bet you know uh, an average size rural house and maybe maybe seven acres would be pushing it. If this explanation hasn't completely explained things to you, here's some of my favorite bottle thrillers to direct your mind's eye: Reservoir Dogs. Clue. Stagecoach. Now, possibly that's a stretch, but I'm I'm willing to defend the designation. If you want to write me, write the podcast, or challenge this, I'm willing to have that argument with you. And I hope you do. I hope you do challenge me to that designation of stagecoach as a bottle throne. I mean, most of the action takes place within the stagecoach. Now the action goes quite a ways across the country, but it's the human drama in the coach that matters. And the human drama in the little rest area that they stop in, in the film. I I think Stagecoach is a goddamn bottle film, and uh, I hope you guys will fight me on this. Come at me, I'm ready. It's not just the whiskey talk. Night of the Living Dead, Panic Room, Phone Booth, or even more recently, Don't Breathe. I mean, I think in the time I read those selections, you guys probably came up with some titles of your own. So even though I just learned this term of art for this kind of small-scale film, my definition or my idea of this kind of film hinged on the following question. Could the film be easily done on stage with minimal set or costume changes? If the answer is yes, the film is most likely one of those kind of small, single-room, small-area kinds of films that I've always really treasured. As with most films, but, but maybe even more so with bottle films or bottle thrillers, whether fantastical or realistic fiction, success, I suspect, hinges on great acting, at least solid writing, and decent production value. The the films have to approach a kind of perfection that matches the limitations of their genre. There is just less to distract viewers from deficiencies in any aspect of the film in a bottle thriller. There are no big FX scenes, there are no big stunt beats, no surplus stars to grab onto of some performance doesn't work for a viewer everyone and everything has to work really well now there may be some kind of sliding scale films receive more. some films may receive more latitude than others within this genre i don't think viewers probably judge night of the living dead by the same standards of say david fincher's panic room still I think I'm onto something here. Now that we have an idea of the thriller niche in which No, no Exit exists, maybe I should maybe, maybe 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 I should get into talking about the film itself. The film No Exit begins in a rehab center in California, I think. We don't really get a lower third on this. I don't I don't think. It's been a while since I've seen it and I'm into my cups here, audience, so anyway, it opens on a group uh, on a bit of group therapy in which we meet the film's protagonist, a down on her luck attempting to recover addict named Darby. I don't think they give her a last name. Darby is an outwardly ambivalent, unsure, skeptical, and uh, a skeptical of, and perhaps even hostile to, the entirety of the rehab process. I'm tempted to include here, I don't want to go to rehab, but I'm not going to. She has tried to quit before, I think. I mean, that sort of seems to be implied. And Lou, Lou uh, portrays Darby as a person tired of trying to quit and certainly tired of the trauma sharing with peers she must do in rehab. Darby is just as clearly, I think, tired of herself. I think Lou really conveys that pretty well. In the session that we are introduced to the character, she voices much of this, but also calls out a fellow traveler in the land of addiction for spewing rehab bullshit. The doctor in charge sounds like he has also hoed this uh, addiction row himself, and he gently gives her a rebuke, and Darby also seems really tired of this kind of gentle rebuke that the doctor gives her. I don't know that it's a good idea to have somebody who was in rehab, uh, who experienced this lead rehab, but I, you know, I don't know, I'm I'm not a Gone through it. So I don't know if this is, if I'm right about this or not. So anyway, moving on. During the session, Darby gets a call wherein she learns from a friend of the family. Uh, she learns from a friend of the family or a cousin that her mom has been admitted to the hospital with late stage pancreatic cancer. It's a bad, that's a bad one, folks. The cousin thinks better of calling her to let the clinic, uh, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Let me back up. She wants to, Darby wants to leave and go be with her mom. And she knows that some words from her family might help, but the cousin or a friend of the family, or whatever the fuck this person is who called her, thinks better of calling the clinic. He thinks, she, the guy thinks that she needs to stay there. And so he doesn't, he doesn't like to help smooth her way home. She tries to make, and anyway, the guy hangs up on it. She tries to call back or call her family, but she very quickly runs into trouble with the staff as she really isn't supposed to make extra calls. So when she hangs up with her cousin or friend or whatever the hell it is, she tries to make another call and a kind of smug staffer uh, puts the kibosh on that. Now, Darby somewhat effectively pleads her case uh, to the staff, but but the, but the staffer doesn't really believe her. Uh, Darby has clearly engaged in some bullshitting of her own. I mean, she is a person who is in rehab. She has probably lied about things in the past. A- and the orderly that she's talking to regards her with the understandable, if not entirely helpful, cynicism of someone who has been working uh, in such a place for a really long time. The doctor in charge, to his credit, does attempt to call Darby's family. Her family does not pick up or reach out. Again, I found this to be I found this to be a very real reaction that was both entirely understandable for Darby's Dar, for Darby's family to do and entirely painful to watch Darby's reaction to this essential rejection of her by her family. I mean, I I get it. I feel I feel bad for everybody involved, and I think the film does a really good job of conveying uh, the real human tragedy of addiction in these moments most people watching this will know some version of this story personally either closely or by seeing it in the family of friends or you know near family of their own i mean you know it's 2022 folks and and everybody's sort of had some experience of seeing this story this part of the story play out when I watch this, I imagine that the family wanted none of Darby's attendant drama anywhere near their dying mother. I mean, her mother's not making it out of this. This is late-stage pancreatic cancer. She's not She's not surviving. And in a later text, we see just before Darby makes a fateful decision, her sister Devin even used the term drama, as in, we don't want any of your drama here. Darby's burned a lot of bridges, and this is where she finds herself. It's in this moment that Darby clearly gives the doctor in charge of her rehab program all the signals of a person who was about to do something painfully and consequentially wrong-headed. He warns her, seeing this on her face, I mean, this doctor has been around the block, he warns her that leaving her court-ordered program of rehabilitation without permission will likely land her directly in jail. Darby knocks. And bullshits. And I suspect that both the doc and she understand that they are both going through motions here. Darby... The doctor understands that Darby is going to try to escape, but the doc is... I mean, he's essentially done all he can. He's putting the ball in her court. To his credit, again, he does say he'll call her family again on Monday, but he's... Checking out at six, and uh, maybe that shows a little bit of his cynicism. Going back to our suspicion that this is a noir film full of cynic- cynical people. Anyway, the book maybe handles Darby's pressing, almost irrational need to see and support her mother better than the movie. I'm not sure. I I, I don't know if that's right, but I, I in the book, which is, as I said, quite different in some places, Darby and her mother's last conversation was acrimonious, awful, and almost final. Both women said things they almost surely wanted to take back after they said them. You get the sense that both women wanted to say sorry. I mean, this is what I imagine, I guess, after, after they said these things, but for the inertia of a really heated argument. I'm sure everybody's been there. You say things you immediately regret, but the inertia of that argument prevents you, maybe, from seeing clearly that you didn't want to say those things, and so you don't, you don't apologize when you should, and that's where that's where uh, Darby and her mom are in the book. Thus, neither the mother or daughter had reached out to one another in a year or more. Bef- when Darby re- gets this news about her mom, book Darby has regretted the final conversation since it happened. Mom has probably as well, and fiercely wants their final words to one another to be anything but what they were. Book Darby is determined to have different last words. Movie Darby seems compelled by the simple needs of family and tribe. I'm not even sure there is strong subtext of bitter last words. Though the film via flashback makes it clear that their last interaction was fraught, painful, and entirely, entirely traumatic. Especially for Darby's mother. And that isn't to say that Darby's decision to risk jail to be with family that doesn't want her there isn't believable. You know, people often feel compelled by the bonds of family regardless of how frayed those bonds might be. Whatever the motivation, Darby decides to risk a stretch in the slammer to see her mom. The escape sequence isn't a big action beat, but it is crucial because we get to see that Darby is considerably resourceful and smart. Darby, by the way, is... Absolutely slammer bound. Uh, as not only does she leave rehab court ordered, she promptly commits Grand Theft Auto, which is a potential felony in California. Uh, she steals her doctors. I know she steals the orderlies. Uh, car and and finds cocaine in the orderly's car The the orderly is not quite the stellar individual that he presents himself to be in clinic i guess again noir sensibilities everybody is a little bit gray in this movie anyway as you saw in the trailer and maybe heard in the trailer Darby's trip over the mountains is halted by a massive snowstorm. And this is an interesting scene. In a dark moment on the trip, her sister texts her some very, very harsh things. It, that bit about we don't want your your goddamn drama, we don't want you here, and and then Darby can't get a single back or, or Devon, her sister isn't responding. And it's in this dark moment, the dejected Darby, you know, who's feeling defeated and having and having recently found some cocaine in the orderly's car, contemplates using it there on the mountain. On the side of the road. One of the things I find really interesting and compelling about Darby is that she, that while she clearly suffers from addiction, it's that she's at this crossroads in her life. She is about out of second chances. She is young. She hasn't been an addict for too long. She's still relatively healthy. But one can only but, but one can only fall off the wagon so many times before the will and the strength to get back on it are gone. Many of the people in her family suspect she is past the point of recovery. And I wondered as I watched her look. At that cocaine, if she wasn't contemplating a kind of suicide, I, uh, if the cocaine—there's quite a lot of it—didn't uh, kill her outright, I suspected that if she took it, she would never come out of her addiction again. And I think that that's what she's sort of, kind of looking at when she's looking at this cocaine. She's been rejected by her family yet again, and some of this—that's the other drama. If you, if you kind of pay attention, then you accept the film, the film's premise fully. The drama of the film is that some of this behavior of her family is the family sort of protecting itself from the emotional trauma of Darby. They do love her, but it's hard to watch somebody you love damage themselves, and they're kind of done with it. And, and I think Darby gets this in this scene, and and but it, it's, it's an interesting moment. In what I thought about this scene, and Havana Rose Lou does this really well, this is sort of her to be or not to be moment where she decides, sort of, she doesn't really make the decision here, whether or not she's going to live or die. She's saved from making the decision in this moment by a passing state trooper who informs her that she has to take shelter at a rest stop or go back down the mountain. Darby elects to go forward to the rest area and it's there that Darby must, must take shelter with four other people, strangers. So, while Darby is attempting to get a cell signal, she hears some noise from the white panel van covered in construction company logos. Looking into the back, curious, Darby's still a little curious, even though she's sad and all these things that are going on in her life. Uh, she is shocked by a hand smacking the back window of the van. To her dismay, Darby discovers a half-bound child in the van. And that is all the detail I want to go into here. No X is, no is still fairly new, and I don't really want to spoil it. Spoil any of the thriller's gruesome and, and entirely genuine surprises. For some reason, Darby has decided to try to save a little girl she does not know. We, the viewer, are about to find out at least one person's answer to the film's tagline, How Far Would You Go for a Stranger? One thing I will say is that I found Darby to be an entirely fascinating character to watch. Uh, She is tenacious, rash, resourceful, and finds believable reserves of strength and courage in some harrowing spots. She is also, and also believably, a bit foolish, All these traits are maybe, just maybe necessary to decide to try to save someone against impossible odds. It probably also helps that Darby has the toughness of a consistent survivor. No Exit almost as certainly succeeds or fails based on the strength of the lead. I think the casting director scored big by choosing Havana Rose Liu as the indomitable Darby. I thought Liu captured perfectly the emotional turmoil of some of someone at Darby's particular crossroads. She believably shows that Darby has all the attributes to beat her addiction. You know, with the right milieu, the right support port, she she has a chance. But at the same time, Lou shows how close Darby is to falling down a hole she won't emerge from. The quest stands upon the edge of a knife. Stray but a little and it will fail to the ruin of all. Yet hope remains. Lou gives us a Darby. That we really root for, but the film gives us a Darby where we understand why a lot of other people aren't rooting for her. And I think that's a that's a subtle trick. Lou is a standout in No Exit, and I think this is saying something because the entire cast is all very good. There are no bad performances in the film. The production values are quite high, and the few effect shots created work really well. So, but before getting to the verdict, I'd like to touch on the score by Marco Beltrami. Uh, this is the second film, I think the second film, with Beltrami's work we reviewed on Max and Jason Watcher Movie. Uh, the last time we heard from him was in the film Logan. His work was exceptional in that film, and it is here as well. Uh, Beltrami, like a lot of composers, certainly has a, a sound, but he really understands what works in noir films. And he ha- his music has uh well his music has this brooding quality and dark sound that really works well with film noir he does a bill does an excellent job of not distracting the viewer sometimes composers go overboard a bit and they kind of interfere i think with the drama on on film. Bill seems to really understand where his music needs to go and, and plays almost understated uh with the with the performances on screen. Uh, he has a Beltrami has a sound but he doesn't sound the same from film to film I mean this doesn't sound like Logan uh, which was almost a maybe a neo-western noir western almost anyway this film definitely sounds like a Beltrami score uh, but I also think it's pretty original so I, I think I think the score works really well I'm not Jason so I you know take that with a grain of salt. Jason is a student of film score, and I'm just uh, sort of offering my two cents. I think it works really well. I think the score is really good. Um, And and again, uh, another pause before we reach the verdict. I kind of want to address some of the key differences between the novel and the movie. So in the book, uh, Book Darby is an art student And she, by the time she gets to the uh, rest area, she's running on no sleep and a lot of Red Bull. Uh, Her sleep deprivation and worry about her mother are offered by the author to explain a few of her mistakes in the novel. Movie Darby is an addict trying to do the right thing. Some of her mistakes can be explained by her own panic about her mother. Her own sleep deprivation and the fact she isn't a trained law enforcement professional. I think the novel maybe works a little too hard at times to explain some of the mistakes, I suppose you would say that Darby made that, that move that book Darby makes. I don't think that it's really required. I didn't think that it was required that the book explain why she didn't figure it all out in the beginning. The book also talks a lot about why Darby elects to save the child. Like, they uses the phrase, like, she decided to become a hero. But but again, I think here the book works a little too hard. I don't think there's much need to explain the motivation of a, like a morally average person's desire to save an innocent child. I just think most people would try and do something to, to affect the situation in a positive way. I actually think movie Darby... Movie... <laughs> I actually think movie Darby's actions make much more sense than book Darby's do. Book Darby is a decent student with no criminal record. The best course of action for her is is to wait the storm out, gather intelligence to feed to the authorities the moment cell service returns. Book Darby will will be believed by the police. Movie Darby will be seen first as an addict trying to get out of trouble for stealing a car and breaking out of a court-ordered treatment. Movie Darby will not be believed until it is probably far too late and the kidnappers have put more distance between themselves and the rest area. I think the pressure movie Darby feels to act is maybe more believable than book Darby. So I think the movie succeeds a little bit better at explaining motivations, maybe, than the book does. Is this a situation where the movie is actually better than the book? Which is a pretty rare occurrence. I don't know. I think I prefer the movie to the book. I think that by making Darby an addict or a person trying to recover from addiction, I think it adds a layer of suspense because Darby is an atypical kind of hero for a genre like this, for, for this genre. And she's sort of behind the curve a little bit in a way that book Darby just isn't. Book Darby has a lot more things going in her favor than movie Darby does. I don't know. If you've read the book and seen the movie, uh, let me know what you think, audience. Mileage probably will vary, as I like to say, on that question. And, uh, yeah, but I'd be curious to know what you think. And so, uh, what's the verdict? Let me tell you. Audience. As an exercise in genre, No Exit has to rank high. Judged within the thriller class, it might be an 8 or 9 out of 10. As just judged against other thrillers. As a simple work of cinematic art and not by the limits of the thriller genre, a fair score will probably fall between a 7 and an 8 out of 10. Uh, This is very solidly in the thumbs-up territory. No Exit is a professional, efficient, and effective movie. It, It kind of reminded me... Of an Andrew Davis thriller, almost Andrew Davis translating or adapting maybe a Stephen King noir crime novel. Davis's films were well-paced, clever, efficient, almost to a fault. But the cinematography and the movement of the camera, the shot composition, even the quality of the, the film uh, in a Davis-directed movie were simply professional but not elevated. That isn't a knock necessarily, but I think that the simple professional efficiency, but, but I think, sorry, let me back, to, let, me, let me try that again. But I think that the simple professional efficiency of, of a Davis film is why his films and why some thrillers never really transcend the boundary of that genre. No exit is in that simple professional space. And, and I think that's A-OK. If you like thrillers, and especially if you like the subgenre of th- thrillers that is the bottle, th- that is the bottle thriller, you could do a lot worse than No Exit, and it would be hard to find much better. All right, folks, that is the show. We will see you next week with the unexpected spooky season selection of Deliverance. You heard that right, and we'll defend this choice in the next episode. Anyway. If you, like, if you like us, leave a five-star review uh, for us on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find us. It helps us find them. You can reach us via email at lordmovies39 at gmail.com. You never do this, but uh, send an email. Shoot us some kind of com- uh, communication, so, and let us know what you think of the show. Let us know where you think we can improve. Let us know what we should review uh, in terms of horror movies. Deliverance is the only thing that's definitely in the books, but maybe you guys want to hear us talk about your... Your favorite spooky movie let us know uh, I can be reached if you don't want to if you don't want to reach out via email that's too long a process for you and that's fine I get it you can reach me at the separatist at on twitter or you can reach out to us on instagram at max and jason watch a movie all one word all lowercase uh, on the great gram uh, reach out and let us know what you think let us know what we should review. Anyway, that's all the news that's fit and print from Lord Movie Studios. And we'll see you next week with the classic, Deliverance. Bye-bye. Three, two, one. The quest stands upon the edge of a knife. Stray but a little and it will fail to the ruin of all. Yet hope remains. Ooh, hey, hey. <laughs>